Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We'd love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org contact to introduce yourself today. Thank you, Paul. It's great to be with you again. Am I the only one that has problems with this, getting the bread out? Is anybody else? Like, I need a little bit more lead time. There have been times I, you know, I'm praying and I say, Lord, I'm thankful for your body, but I just couldn't get the bread out this morning. So uh, I'd always make it in time for the juice. But what a delight to be with you folks today. And I'm thankful for Pastor Chris and for the leadership of, of Woodside that's allowed me this opportunity. As many of you know, uh, we transitioned from here about two and a half years ago. And over the last two and a half years, really it started a little bit before that, we've been working with a, a ministry called Barnabas Ministries of Michigan. And our sole purpose is to encourage as well as to resource and strengthen pastors and churches. So we've done that through um, lots of different things from mentor groups. We've had right now about 43 different mentor groups that meet once a month with about four or five guys in each one. We do retreats. We just came back from a retreat uh, with uh, Dr. Joe Stoll, who ministered to 10 couples, and it was wonderful. I know for some of those couples that were at the retreat, they were hanging on in their last thread, wondering if they're going to be able to continue in ministry. And so I'm thankful for the retreat ministry that we have at the Lodge. We do cohort groups, and we're doing weekly podcasts now. So we're trying to do everything we can to keep pastors encouraged and strengthened and uh, staying in the ministry, in the game of serving Jesus. And I want to thank you uh, and the church for its support of us, Pastor Dave, uh, and uh, uh, not only financial support, but also your prayer support. Encouragement cards, it means so very, very much to us. So thank you. It's good to be with you. Um, you all know the name William Shatner? Captain Kirk in the Star uh, Trek series. And he did 79 of those episodes and uh, boldly went where no man has ever gone before. Uh, he did the movies. In fact, the last uh, Star Trek movie, The Final Frontier, he helped write it. But uh, he didn't really actually go where no man has ever gone before. In all those years and all those episodes and all those movies, he never left the movie set until... About two months ago, he had the opportunity, did you see it? In that space uh, rocket with Jeff Bezos flying out of, of Texas, I watched the whole thing. It didn't last very long, but it took off, uh, and he, he describes it later. He said, we went through the blue so fast, and then got into the black of space, and then came down, and when his capsule came down and touched on Earth, he came out, and there was a microphone waiting for him. Do you remember? Did you watch this? He went on forever. He talked longer than when he was in space. <laughs> but he, he was animated. He's a 90-year-old man. He was animated. He was emotional. And he said these words. He says, I am forever transformed by these moments. And I thought of that when I thought of our story this morning as we enter into a new series 
called uh, Anything is Possible, Nothing's Impossible for God, and finding our story in the Christmas story through some eyewitness accounts. You may want to join me in your Bibles and your devices in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. The story is a story, not of a 90-year-old man, but the story of a teenage girl whose life was dramatically transformed forever. And when we find our story in the Christmas story, we'll also find that our lives were dramatically transformed forever. Luke chapter 1. What I want to talk to you about this morning is that nothing is impossible for God. Absolutely nothing. And we want to look at this story starting in verse 26. And we're going to learn a couple of things. First of all, when God calls, God provides. And when God calls, we need to respond. And so let's pick up the story. And we find when God calls, he supplies. Let me just read a few verses starting verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. You've heard those words and you've read those words many, many times in your life. Let's circle back and just touch on some of those words and, and see if we can find ourselves in this story of Mary. Very, very unusual. We notice first, he, he said to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. I think he's including Galilee here so that they knew where the city of Nazareth was. In one of the ancient manuscripts, it lists many of the cities of Galilee. Nazareth is not listed there. Nazareth was an insignificant town. It's a larger town now. But 2,000 years ago, <clears throat> it was an insignificant little town in a place called Galilee. Galilee was a long way, uh, a long many, many miles from Jerusalem where the hub of activity, spiritual activity was, where the temple was where great worship was, where people would migrate uh, at least three times a year from all over the region to come there for those holy days of festival. Well, it's many, many miles, it's light years spiritually from Jerusalem. And in Isaiah, eight centuries before uh, this happened, Isaiah would prophesy, he says, behold, there's going to be a great light shining in darkness. Where's that? It's in the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, those tribal areas that compose the area of Galilee. It, Galilee is often called Galilee of the Gentiles because it, be, it was Gentile-ridden uh, for so many years. They began to worship false gods. It was the other side of the tracks. And while Jesus would not be born there, he'd be born down near Jerusalem in Bethlehem, his Joseph and Mary were from that area, and they would go back in that area, and that's where Jesus would grow up. He would be a great light, and he still is, isn't he? In a land of great darkness. So that's Galilee of the Gentiles. Why would God choose that? A very humble place. We go on and read 
even the word virgin to a virgin. Mary's called virgin twice before she's called Mary here in the text, before she's identified. And so the, uh, Luke, the author, is trying to make a point. This is a big deal here. Her virginity is not mentioned as a point of a piety or purity that um, qualifies her in some way to carry the Son of God, for whom, from whom the Son of God would, be, would come into the earth. No, her virginity is mentioned rather as an obstacle to the birth of a child. Mary, a relative of, of uh, excuse me, uh, Elizabeth, a relative of Mary, was going to have a baby. She was in her sixth month, and what makes it somewhat extraordinary is that she was barren and she was old. That was extraordinary. That was a miracle. But for a lady who's a virgin, before and after conception, to have a baby, that's a super miracle. With God, nothing's impossible. So the, he mentioned this, and he's really uh, tracking with Isaiah in the seventh chapter where the prophecy comes forth, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you'll call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. And so we, we lock onto that, the fact that she's a virgin. And the name, her name was Mary. We don't know much about Mary, and what, what people today seem to do, and probably all through the ages, they'll go to one extreme or another with Mary. They'll elevate her and exalt her, almost to the point where Jesus becomes second place. Or else they'll degrade her so much that she's just a, a peasant girl at that time, and, uh, and, and, and she was, but she was also highly favored by God. Highly favored. And we find that the girls at that time would often marry uh, very young in their teens oftentimes. And the way it happened, the word betrothed is used here. The way it would happen in that day is that if a, a young man was attracted to a, a, a young lady, he would go with his father to the father of the young lady, in this case being Mary, it's interesting, um, I've often wondered about her father, haven't you? How that all happened, how it all took place. When you read in the book of Luke, the genealogy that Luke in chapter 3 has, he'll, and, and then Matthew, Matthew will include a genealogy in chapter 1, uh, but those genealogies don't match. Well, the reason they don't is because Matthew's genealogy traces um, Joseph and his legal right, because Matthew's point in his book is to help convince the people that Jesus is the Messiah and has a legal right to the throne of David. Where Luke, Luke's genealogy is much longer, but it includes, both genealogies include the name of Joseph. In Matthew's gospel, uh, Joseph is named, and his father, I believe, is named Jacob. In the Luke account, it would appear that Joseph's father is a man by the name of Haley, Eli with an H in the front of it. And when you look at that and then you begin to dig deep, it's, it's the understanding that Luke's gospel is the genealogy tracing Mary's descendants all the way back and through King David. And so it's listed there. So her dad's name is Heli. And I've often, that meeting that took place, 
where Joseph and his father were there, and a gift is exchanged, a mohar, a gift is exchanged where money is given to the father of the bride. As the father of two daughters, I wish that practice would continue. <laughs> How about, you'll be retroactive. And the, and the reason that money was given is to help repay the father a bit for the expenses, but also to help as an insurance policy if something were to happen to the groom or the husband after that marriage down the road. This would be money that would help take care of his daughter. And so, and, and so papers were signed, a gift was exchanged, and that began legally a time period that lasted about a year, an engagement time period where they, in a sense, were considered husband and wife, although they were not to be involved sexually with one another or anyone else. And this is the time period of betrothed. And so he's talking about Mary being in this time period when the angel of the Lord, Gabriel, comes to her and says, you're highly favored, greetings. She went from being highly favored to being greatly disturbed. She didn't understand it. I don't blame her. She's a kid. She's a young lady, maybe late teens. There hasn't been a prophetic word uh, that we have recorded for 400 years. And all of a sudden a day happens where an angel appears to her. She doesn't have any context, she doesn't have any history, she doesn't have anything to compare it to. And an angel comes to her and says, oh, by the way, you're highly favored. And you're gonna have a baby. And that baby is gonna be called Jesus. I find this fascinating. Later on in the chapter, Mary would say, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in a God of, the God of my salvation. For he has seen the humble estate of his servant. I love that. For he has seen the humble estate of his servant. We have to find our place, as Mary did. And folks, isn't that really what salvation is all about? Salvation is not applied really to the proud and to the arrogant. Salvation comes to those who are humbled. Later on in the book of Luke, um, Jesus was sharing a story, a parable, and he gives us the reason he shares this parable. He says, he also told the parable to some who were trusting in themselves that were righteous and treated others with contempt. You remember this story. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, could you hear him? Unjust adulterers or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get even the tax collector standing afar off, he wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, Jesus says. But he beat his breast and he said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he that humbles himself will be exalted. 
We have to find our story in the story of Mary, to be broken and humbled, to be able to receive the gift that God wants to give us. Mary was that. Reading just recently in Dane uh, Ortland's great book, uh, Gentle and Lowly, he talks about a story like this, where he says there are two kinds of people in the world who don't know Jesus yet. One of them is the, the morally dead, the person who thinks he's got it together and has his own righteousness. And the other one is the immoral, immorally dead, the person who's lived this life and has experienced so, so much sin. Jesus saw both of these in his lifetime when he lived on earth here. And it's fascinating that when he, was confront, when he confronted those who were morally dead, he gave them the law that they could see that they were uh, not keeping the law. They're not as righteous as they thought they were. When he, when he confronted those who were broken, the immorally dead, he didn't need to give them the law. They didn't need that reminder. They knew that they were sinners. They knew they needed a savior. What he gave them was his love. Look at the stories. And Dane Ortman makes the point that all of us without Christ, whether we're morally dead or whether we're immorally dead, we're dead. We're dead. And we desperately need a savior. And so Mary helps us with that. She says, oh, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices within me when I see that he, God my Savior, has looked at the humble estate of his servant. May we have that humility. May we have it. Let me continue to read here. He says, well, don't be afraid. Mary, you've found favor with God. And behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Imagine this young lady listening to this. And then he gives her this five-fold description of the baby that will come forth from her womb. Number one, he will be great. I don't know of any parent that doesn't think their kids are great. If we had time, I'd love to share with you how great my kids are, but even better, how great my grandkids are. How about you? But rarely do you find an angel from heaven saying, your child will be great. And it's too bad we've used that word great so um, flippantly today, that we use the great to describe pizza, a football game, and God. There ought to be a word we just isolate for God. I thought it was gonna be awesome for a while. The word awesome, but awesome's used for everything like that too. But folks, understand, you believe it, don't you? That Jesus is great. He will be called great. It goes on to say here, number two, he will be called the son of the most high. That's saying he's deity. Jesus is deity, Jesus is God. John the Baptist was called the prophet of the Most High. Jesus is called the Son of the Most High. Major, major upgrade. And then he says, number three, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. If I'm reading that and I'm driving the bus and all of you are on it, I'm hitting the brakes hard. We come to a screeching halt 
and we turn the bus around and we drive back, not, not 2,000 miles, but 2,000 years. Did we just hear that right? And in the bus, we come to a stop by the angel Gabriel. And I'll say, as I open the door, Gabriel, I thought I heard you say something about the son being able to sit on the throne of his father. Is that what you said? And Gabriel repeats, and God will make him to sit on the throne of his father, David, forever. Thank you. I close the door and we drive the bus now another thousand years. Back to the time of David. We have to get this firsthand. We have to know the context. And the context of that time was David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 wanted to build this house for God. He made the argument to the prophet Nathan at the time. He said, man, the house I live in is beautiful and we got the wainscoting. It's fantastic. It doesn't seem right that God has to dwell in his presence in a tent. I want to build a house. Nathan said, go for it. Fantastic. And they both went home that night and probably David in the palace is making blueprints for the, for the place. Ordering materials or getting ready, material list. And Nathan is awakened by God and God said, you should have never have told him that. In the morning, go back and tell him he's not to build me a house. Can you imagine Nathan the prophet having to go back and do a 180? He comes to David the next day and David, uh, Nathan's brought into David and David's excited and Nathan said, King, I've got, I've got a word from you from God. Remember I said you're gonna build the, you're not. Have you ever got a no answer from God? I have. And when you get that no answer from God, it's like you're, what's happening? Why not? And the dreams you had or thought you had, hoping they would materialize, and all of a sudden you, kind, you find they're just, that they're over. They're deleted. And sometimes God gives a reason for his no answer, and sometimes he doesn't. In this case, David had the pleasure of knowing God's reason. Here's what God said. Nathan, or excuse me, David, I don't want you to build me a house because I want to build you a house. And I'm going to build you a house so that from your kingdom and from your throne, one will come sit, sit in that throne who will reign forever and ever and ever. And so when David died, his son came to the throne and people had to be asking, who knew of this prophecy? Is he the one? Is he the one that's going to do this? Is he the one that's gonna sit on his father David's throne? And while Solomon started off well, he didn't end well. And so then another, and then another, and the kingdoms are divided, and another, and another, and you could count them, uh, 18, 19, maybe 20 different kings. And each time at their public coronation as the nation was gathered and the prophet would anoint them to be the next king of Israel, people would be asking, is this the one, is this the one? 
And most of those kings did evil in the sight of the Lord. And it didn't take long for the people to understand, this is not the one. He is not the one. And then Zedekiah being the last king before the exile. And the last king recorded for, for Israel. And then the, the years of, of um, silence. But what about the promise of God? What about the promise he made to David? And then an angel comes a thousand years after that promise. And he said, Mary, it's your son. Your son. He's going to sit on the throne of his father, David, and he's going to reign forever and ever. When Jesus came, the people rejected him. And in a sense, he reigns today in the lives of people who have committed their lives to him. We sing about that. We believe that. The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom, and it reigns in the hearts of those who know and love him. But the promise is yet to be fulfilled where Jesus will sit on the throne of his father, David, forever and ever and ever. After the tragedy of Tuesday, I had a call from a radio station asking if I would uh, be willing to be interviewed. I agreed, and they didn't give me any questions. They said it's going to be about 20 minutes long. So I wanted to be ready, so I assumed some questions. And one of the questions I assumed and prepared myself to answer was this. Could not have God, could not have God stopped that tragedy? And that question came. And Rabbi Kushner, when he wrote his book on when, when bad things happen to good people, was coming to the conclusion that either God is too, uh, or not powerful enough to have intervened, or he wasn't loving enough and compassionate enough to step in. And we know both of those, neither one of those are true. Our God who spoke a world into existence, a God who was sovereign, as Pastor Chris said, and had a plan he could pull that all. He could have stopped any of it. He's powerful enough. Is he compassionate enough? How would you answer that question? Absolutely, he's compassionate enough. But he had a plan. Tim Keller once wrote, he said, once we realize and stop trying to make this life heaven, we're going to enjoy it a lot more. This is not the perfect world. It's a broken world. But one day, folks, one day, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 15, that Jesus Christ will come breaking forth through the clouds in a white horse. And the word, of the, the word will proceed from his mouth and the armies of the world will be destroyed. And he'll set up his kingdom. And he'll set up his kingdom with, with mercy and truth. And as the Bible says, righteousness and peace will kiss each other. And God himself will wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there'll be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more murders, no more suicides, no more times when kids are killing kids, no more abortion, no more rejection, no more brokenness. As the, the modern song would say, there'll be a time when all old things will be made new and everything's broken will be restored. That's not now, this is not the perfect world. This is a broken world. But one day, don't get me wrong folks, 
it's broken. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try to make it better. But, it's, it's, but in the meantime, it's broken, and we need the hope that's offered. As Pastor Chris has been preaching from Romans chapter 8, all creation groans as if in childbirth, the pains of childbirth. I feel like we've all in this region, we've known there's been a broken world because we read, of, we read about Sandy Hook, and we read about Minneapolis, and we read about Nashville, we read about Baltimore, but now it's Oxford. And we've all felt this week to some extent, and it'll continue like the pains of childbirth. This can't be happening. It can't be happening here. So our tears are measured not in drops, but in buckets this week as we've prayed and as we've tried to encourage and we've tried to share the love of Jesus Christ because Jesus is the only answer. Handel took these words and put them into a song that we like to sing this time of the year. This kingdom, this kingdom now, will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ and of his Christ. And he shall reign, what's the, what are the words, folks? Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And to that we sing hallelujah. Let me continue reading from verse 32. He will be great and called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Holy the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, will be called holy the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And, in, and this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Let's stop there. I want to go back to verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be? In my Bible, I've underlined that word how because I've asked it a thousand times over the years. We say when God calls, he provides. When God wants us to do something, and we say, how? When God said to Abraham, come out of your country and your kindred and come to a land that I'm gonna show you. Oh, and by the way, I'm gonna multiply your seed like the stars of the sky and like the sands of the sea. Remember Abraham, his wife Sarah said, how? How are you going to do that when we're old, 75 and 65? And they kept getting older. And they kept asking the question, how? When Isaac was born, and now a young man, <clears throat> God said, to go and sacrifice your son, your only son, Isaac. And Abram's asking the question, how? How am I going to do that? This is the heir that you've promised me. And from me, now from him, will come descendants like the sands of the sea, like the stars of the sky. How? And time after time through recorded revelation, we have those words, how? How are you going to do it? We're coming to the Red Sea. The Egyptians are behind us. We're coming to the Jordan River. We don't have any food. How? I remember I was thinking about this in the last couple of weeks. 
Uh, somebody asked me at, a, at a, a, a luncheon on Tuesday, how did you get, or, excuse me, Friday, how did you ever, you guys end, ever up in, end up in ministry? And my mind went back at that luncheon to when my wife and I were 19. We, it was, we were in our second year of college, and God had, was working in both of our hearts independently on the same night. And we came together at the end of the evening, around 10 o'clock at night, um, to talk. And we both shared with each other that we, think, we thought God was calling us to some kind of ministry. But the question I had was how? God, how could you? We, we, I was not a Rhodes Scholar, nor was Carolyn. And I didn't see any gifts that I had that God could ever use. So the question I asked God, and I asked him that, this question during the early years of ministry, how? How could you do this? Now it's been 50 years since that night. And I look back and I don't ask how anymore because he's answered that question. And he will for you too. With God, nothing's impossible. And as I look back at the 50 years of ministry so far, and I think it was all God. God answers all the how questions. In fact, God is the answer for all the how questions. Whatever he's called you to do, however impossible it seems, God can do it because his arm is not too short. He's, he's, he, he doesn't lack power. You're never going to exhaust the power of God, and he'll work in your hearts and lives and answer those prayers that you think are impossible. Now, after 50 years, I ask a different question. Why? And I'll answer that in a moment. But, look, but notice that in, in, she's, uh, she's saying it with God, you know, anything is possible. Remember, remember the, the story that Jesus told? He says it's easier for a, a rich man excuse me, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle or open up a communion bread <laughs> than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. The disciples hearing that and understanding it said, well then, how does anybody get saved? And the answer came back, with man, <clears throat> things are impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Folks, believe that. Find your story in Mary's. And she's a humble servant. And say with her, oh, my soul magnifies you. My spirit, my spirit rejoices in the God of my salvation. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Now look. At verse 38, where God calls, God provides. But verse 38 reminds us where he says, uh, Behold, look at her response. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I can only imagine Mary is thinking, I get it. I'm going to have a baby. I don't understand it. I don't know what's happening. The Holy Spirit's going to overshadow and it's going to come upon me. I get that. But uh, now, how do I go back to my dad and say, Dad, uh, 
we got a problem. And she tells her dad. And there's a go-between between her and Joseph during this one-year engagement time period. And I can imagine, and she's usually a friend of the groom. You can imagine a friend of the groom by the name of Reuben who comes into the Joseph's carpenter shop one day and Joseph is whittling away and he's uh, maybe humming, <clears throat> here comes the bride, here comes the bride. As he's counting the days off in his calendar until they're united in marriage as fully husband and wife. And Reuben's, uh, Reuben looks sad. And Joseph, Reuben, what's, what's the matter? It looks like you lost your best friend. <clears throat> Joseph, we have a problem. What is it? Mary's pregnant. Joseph at that time didn't have the revelation that we have now. He's got to be thinking, how could she? How could she? And Mary saw herself as a servant of God, having to work through all of those issues. But God was with her. That wasn't when those words coming from the angel. That wasn't a prayer, may the Lord be with you. It is, the Lord is with you. She refers to herself as a servant. And she says, I'm here to do according to all that you've planned. That's what we do as servants, isn't it? And as servants, we find our story in Mary's story. But our story, just like Mary's story, becomes God's story. And that's the why. It's God's story. You are God's story. God's story, God's glory. Mary caught that and she saw that. <clears throat> Later on in the song, <clears throat> in, the, in the chapter, you'll hear her song where she praises God. She praises him for who he is and what he's done and how he's developing a story to redeem mankind. She gets to be a part of it. And folks, God's still writing that story. But he's writing the story not with Mary anymore, but with you and you and you and you and me. And we respond by our story, God's story, God's glory. And we give him, that's the why. Our lives, we're not, we're not here on this earth as followers of Jesus to do anything but bring him glory. And so we wake up every morning as servants of the Most High God and say, Lord, how are you going to fit me into your plan today? How do you want to use me? Who do you want me to encourage? What check do I need to write? Who do I need to invite to a Christmas concert? How do you want to use me in your massive story of redemption? How are you going to use me, Lord? But I'm your servant. Do according to me all that you have planned. And he will. Have you found your story in Mary's? I hope you have. And if you don't know Jesus yet, whether you're morally dead or immorally dead, you're dead. And you need the transforming power of the Spirit of the living God who will breathe into you the death of life, uh, or breathe into the breath of life. <laughs> That's a blooper, isn't it? <laughs> He'll breathe into you the breath of life. And in that moment of accepting Jesus, you'll be transformed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And so folks, God's story, our story, nothing's impossible. Let's give him the glory.
If you don't know Jesus yet, there'll be people here, friends of yours at the front who would love to share with you and pray with you and introduce you to this Jesus, a baby who became a savior. Would you stand with me in prayer, please? Our God and our Father, we come to you today so very thankful that you're writing a story, so very thankful that nothing's impossible for you. And Lord, we've seen it happen where you've done the impossible. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the way that he's uh, worked in all of our lives. Thank you for the way that he's worked in this church. Um, thank you for the, for the many uh, pronouncements of love and compassion and the gospel of this church during this time to a hurting world and a broken world. Father, use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you folks. Have a wonderful week. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We'd love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org contact to introduce yourself today.